Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. Amy, do you remember when you were at your most down, your most depressed? Oh, most definitely. Well, tell me about that, but also maybe tell me those things that were the first steps to get you out of the lowest point in your life. So first, when was that time? Well, let's see. You know, I think the lowest of the lowest of the lowest I've ever been was in my early 20s. And I was at the um, UW Medical Center in their psych unit. (laughs) If you're kind of like a pretty put together person, you don't really have a history of any sort of psychological disorders, and then you find yourself in a psych unit of um, a hospital, you're probably... Something's happened. Something's, <laughs> something's happened. So, um, so take me back. How did take, you end up in this How did psych? I end up there? Yeah, you know, um, the year before, my sister was murdered. And that's not when, you know, you're, you've got your five-year plan going or you're, you're dreaming about how your life's going to go. You don't plan for something like that. You don't plan for probably the worst tragedy of your life, like you're watching a movie, but it's your life. And how and what you do with that, nobody trains you for that. There's not like a book that you read. In case your sister's murdered, uh, read this self-help book, you know? All that stuff comes later, but you don't even have the tools to get to that. You don't even have the tools to like go to a counselor or a therapist. And a lot of the tools we have and the tools I chose were just drink every day. That was my tool. And it was really scary being alone at that time. And so I was always finding people to be with, always finding people to drink with. And, you know, thing after thing after thing just kept happening in my life. And I think that, you know, life continues no matter what happens, right? Like if you... My sister was murdered, but all the other like sort of shitty little things in my life were continuing. I'd had a breakup. I'd like, you know, was struggling at work, you know, just all the regular shitty little things. I was struggling to make ends meet, et cetera, et cetera. And I took a bottle of pills and chased it with whatever alcohol I had on. And I woke up having my stomach pumped in the hospital. And so, yeah. And then, you know, the protocol is to, in order to keep me safe, they, I had to go to inpatient care over at UW. So I was over at inpatient care and that was absolutely the lowest point. And on that note, we're going to pause for a second, play some theme music and then come back and find out how this turns out, Amy. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. All right, uh, coming up on the uh, the Uplifting Doctor and the DJ podcast today, we have our friend Ben Gibbard. Now, that man gets outside. He runs. He, he is a runner. If you don't know this about Ben Gibbard, you know, death cab, postal service, all around swell guy. 
he is a ultra marathoner. I can't ultra marathon. Well, I haven't. I shouldn't say I can't, but I haven't. That's a lot of mileage, right? I've done a marathon a few times and I run a lot, but um, for my own mental health. Um, but we're going to have Ben Gibber talking a little bit about running. I know he was nursing an injury recently, and we're going to talk about how he powered through the early days of the pandemic with his uh, really awesome at-home broadcasting. So that's coming up. Um, we also have uh, something I want to do here on the podcast, Amy, is alert you to music. It's what I do. I feel like you are the DJ. I am the DJ part. You know, Amy's got the whole, you know, she can tell you in a heartbeat about physics and, you know, if I should go for walks or not. Um, but I can tell you about really cool records. So you can see our relationship is 50-50 here. It is. These are very important things that we offer one another. And I want to offer you music throughout the podcast. So we're just throwing in music throughout this podcast um, of a different artist. And then we'll end with a song. And this podcast, I wanted to, uh, I really wanted to get into the Deep Sea Diver record. Now, Impossible Weight is one of the best records of last year. It was an incredible record. Jessica Dobson and co- company have been making music here in Seattle for years now. So we're going to be hearing music throughout the show uh, from Deep Sea Diver and the Impossible Weight record. I do believe Impossible Weight, that song, top five songs of 2020. So uh, uh, be listening for that. Shatter in the hourglass Trying to make a moment last Do I have to be strong enough? So you're at the lowest point in your life. You've been you, they shackled you to the bed, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they tied me up to the safety. bed for my safety. <laughs> that sounds... I'm checking the dictionary now. Rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> looks like sister murdered, took pills, drank, ended up there. And there's a lot to go around that. Clearly, there's more details. What is it that this isn't a simple solution I'm asking for, but I'm I'm wondering, what are those steps that, that we take to get out of whatever it is we're in? Like, be at the lowest point in your life, for instance. What were the things that gave you hope that you wanted to continue to live, that life maybe was worth living, even in a world where your sister is brutally murdered. How can one go on? What What were those things? Are there a few things that you remember? Yeah. Well, for one thing, I remember getting a phone call and I went into the little phone booth and my dad was on the other end of the phone. And he, and he just... He didn't shame me or criticize me or say, what are you doing? You know, how dare you, you know, scare us like that. There was none of that. He just said, I love you. I'm here for you. I will do anything for you. And if you're feeling down and you want to see your friends and family, because I was, I was feeling very alone in Seattle, I will fly you anywhere. I will pay for your airfare or I'll pay for the airfare for someone to come to you. Just so you know, you're not alone. Yeah. So that was the first lifeline to me. And then I would say the second lifeline was, well, it's kind of a funny story because um, there was another, uh, I was going to say inmate. (laughs) It was kind of like that. That's a different story. That's a different story for another time. But there was another patient who kept stealing my food. So I was able to be in contact with some friends and they would say, well, what do you need? And I'd say, I need food. And they're like, you can't, what, they're not feeding you in the hospital? And I said, 
Well, I'm, I'm not really enjoying spending time in the common area of the psych ward. So um, whenever they bring the trays of food out, they bring it in a cart. And every time it kind of gets to me that a meal is being served, I go out there and I can never find my food. And I would spend like way too much time trying to find my food. And I finally figured it out. It was one person every time. And he would take his food and then he would take my food and I would find him in a corner eating both trays of food. So I was hungry. And so I had friends bringing me food. And these were friends that I was in graduate school with. I was in music uh, school. And eventually they started bringing instruments with them. And so they bring me food and then they'd sit around and play music for me. And there's like this little room we could go in. I remember being in there and I remember watching my friend Mark playing an instrument for me. And then he started crying. I said, well, why are you crying? And he's like, I've never, well, I was shaking because I was having like severe alcohol withdrawals. And I think it hit him like how rock bottom I was. And it like hit him how desperate I was for their company. You know, at that point, every single day, that little group of friends, there was three of them, would come. They'd bring me food because my food was getting stolen. <laughs> and they would bring instruments and they'd play music. And it was sort of like, okay, there's people that give a shit. And so that lifeline from my dad and then those people. And then the next thing was eventually I got out of there. Eventually I was like, okay, I got to get out of here. And I was kind of walking around the neighborhood and I walked past a yoga studio and I thought, oh, well, maybe I should try yoga. That's something I could do. And so I went to a yoga class and I really liked it and it was really hard. And in the locker room at the yoga studio, they were offering free yoga to anyone who would clean the yoga studio. So I immediately contacted the owner and then she gave me the job. So I had this exchange where I clean the yoga studio and get free yoga and I built another community. Like I built a friendship with the owner and I built this community in this yoga. So now I had my music people, my yoga, my dad's like going to bail me out at any time to see friends and family and life started to have purpose again. So it was community mm -hmm. overriding all of this, including your family. It was music and it was exercise along yeah. with that community is gave you, I, I kind of picture a ladder in that bottom rung. You had to step onto that rung and, and that, that is what propelled you. Right. It also helps. I mean, this is terrible to say this, but it also helped that, you know, my sister was murdered. She didn't have a choice in her death. And for me, I, I just thought, who am I? Who am I to take my own life? Who am I to give up when she didn't have a choice? And so that perspective, and I, and I think about that all the time because I still have down days. Jeez, man, you know, life's hard. Life is really hard. But I've never felt like I was going to take my own life again. You know, I've had that like, this is too hard. I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I always know there's the next thing and the next day, or I'm going to have joy again. Like I, I know that it's temporary. Well, I, I want to thank one person in particular. Um, Amy had told me off the microphone that one of the reasons she left Harborview is because that dude was stealing all your food. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey, shout out fella. Thanks for taking her food. So she had to get out of there and get a meal. Otherwise I may not be sitting here across from my lovely wife today. 
So parenting every week during the uh, the pandemic has been, let's be honest, pretty fucked. We talked earlier about low points in our, our lives, Amy, and I was thinking about um, our oldest coming forward uh, to me the other day. You know, it just broke my heart. I dealt with depression when I was growing up. I didn't know it was depression. I dropped out of high school when I was 15 um, and nobody knew really how to help me. Uh, I just couldn't. I just couldn't go. I, I literally could not get my body physically. I felt physically ill because I couldn't mentally go through my day. I couldn't face other people. I couldn't do it. And so I'm always, uh, you know me, parenting, I'm, you know, you project your own shit on your kids all the time. And so I'm constantly on the alert for this. And it actually did rear its head with our oldest you know, I just, he just seemed really out of it and it's a pandemic and, you know, homeschooling. You're like, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, I noticed because he was pushing his food around on his plate. Yeah. Like he's it, 16 years old and he's the first one done. And then he's looking at us like, okay, if they don't eat the last thing, I got to eat the last thing. Like he's always wanting more food. And I was watching him stare into his plate and push his food around. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. You know, Dr. Mom was like, okay, we have a situation here. Yeah, I sat him down and I just I just started, you know, just getting specific questions and, and he just finally was a, you know, it's really hard at that age. I had trouble opening up about the things going on in my life. And I had my buddies, you know, I at some point I had my friends and people I could talk to and eventually a girlfriend and I started playing sports again and music saved my friggin' life. Um, and a lot of those things aren't available to him right now. So anyway, he's, he just, he just, you know, he said, I've never felt so alone. And I felt my entire body sink into myself. And I felt sick to my stomach. Even right now saying this, I get kind of clammy. Does that make sense? Just kind of like sweaty and like, oh, oh my God. I felt so helpless in that moment. And I have dealt with depression and talked about depression, go to therapy about depression all my life. And I felt like I had zero tools available when it was my 16-year-old opening up to me. Yeah. Well, you know, once I heard Barack Obama say that, you know, our children, once they take their first step, they continue to take their steps further and further away from you. And mm, I like that. Yeah. And our job, our job is literally to hold him and keep him safe, but to let him go and figure this shit out. For himself and then to help him the best we can but it's that helplessness because you want to fix it you want to get in there and you want to fix it yep but by fixing it for our kids we do them a huge disservice they won't learn how to fix it for themselves you know it it, it was such a weird problem that we're never gonna you know we never had with this with the, with the pandemic too because one of the things that was really bothering him was his kid like his buddies were hanging out you know and it's hard for me not not to react to that, right? But it people view it differently, and his his friends and his there's friends' families are allowing them to hang out during a pandemic. And in our home, we are not allowing that. We believe in science, and we want to protect people. And so, while he wasn't blaming us, it was the definition of one day you will look back on this and you will see your parents were doing the right thing. But when you're in the moment of the thing they're going to look back on, what I didn't realize with that phrase, one day you'll look back at this and you will thank me for it. 
you know, seem like, oh my God, roll my eyes. Sure, mom, whatever. My dad would do that kind of drunk, kind of stumbling into my room. And I, I was pretty aware then like, yeah, no, I think I'm going to look back on this and think you're an idiot. But my mom, I, I remember thinking, you yeah, know, that maybe, <laughs> but that's the definition of it. But what I didn't realize is as a parent, that particular thing, the reason you're saying it is because it is so difficult. I want to just say, yeah, man, go hang with your friends. It's totally okay. Well, he and I were talking about it a little bit and he, he was taking it personally he felt bad. And he said, well, they think I'm lame. And I said, did they say that? Oh, that's lame. You're lame. And he goes, well, no. And I said, okay, listen, it's situational. And this is a big lesson for, I think, every human being in the world <laughs> is that we take it personally when it's a situational thing. Like the pandemic's not his fault. It's not his fault what the rules are you know, wearing masks and social distance and, you know, all the things about um, how many people in what household and on and on and on, you know, those are all things to, intended to make us safe. And, and it's not because he's lame. It's not his fault, but he can feel bad about it. Totally okay to like feel like shit because you miss your friends and feel like shit because you're frustrated and you, and you want to see him. And so, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. More Deep Sea Diver from their album, Impossible Weight. Love that record. Local music here in Seattle. And our music guest is one of my favorite musicians here in town, Amy. We go back a ways. I'm trying, I don't even remember the first time I met Ben Gibbard, but um, I do it. Can I tell you a really quick story mm -hmm. about this that I've always felt crunchy about? Yeah. So years ago, I had Death Cab coming up to the show and I was a snotty, like, hadn't found I've got I feel just gross telling you the story I've changed very much by the way but they had said they like they wanted to DJ and and I was like well no you play music you're a musician so you play music and I'll DJ unless you want me to play in the band you're not gonna DJ was kind of the message but I didn't say it directly to them I said it to someone at the station who thought it was a good idea to then relay that information to the band okay but here's how they played it. And, and I love this part. I walked down, first time I think interviewing Death Cat for Cutie live on the air. And I come walking into the room. You come from the booth, you know, the regular booth where you're doing the show. And then in the, in the performance space, the band's waiting. And the band's there. And they're um, sitting. They're going to do an acoustic performance. And there's an empty chair with a guitar on it, just leaned up against it. And I walk in. And I don't know which of the Death Cabbers said it, but they go, we heard you wanted to play music with the band, John. Feel free. <laughs> and I, burned. I got so burned. So burned. burned. Now, what I've learned over the years, 
First, don't talk to interns or whatever about your inner thoughts about bands DJing. Second, I totally let bands DJ now because that was, I don't know what I was thinking. I think I was thinking they wanted to DJ instead of play music and like, who are you to DJ when I DJ? You know, I was getting all protective of it like a dummy. I was young. Now I'm old, a grizzled veteran who allows anyone to DJ, you know, wanders into the booth. But oh my God, I both was embarrassed and absolutely impressed with how they dealt with that. So that's my, that's my Death Cab for Cutie story, and I love them for it. Uh, without further ado, we're going to talk to Ben Gibbard here on The Doctor and the DJ. Some kind of evil coming from my computer. What happened to but you're recording. We're we're we can just edit that together. People <laughs> will be into that. And we can talk about how much we love technology right now and never being in the same room as anyone. And remember know. when all this started, we were like, Yeah, this is kind of a cool I think we can kind of work with this. This is kind of right. it's nice to not commute, you know, it's nice to do stuff from home. It's kinda of, yeah, it's cool. I kinda of like I think I like it more. Yeah. Yeah. We have crossed over we have crossed over in the last, for me, the last two weeks has been the crossover back to, you know, I think we do need a West Seattle bridge. I think uh, I'd like to leave yeah. here <laughs> and I'd like to go talk to people again because this sucks. And, you know, but at the same time, um, I never want to have to rush to a meeting where 10 people are in the same room ever again. So I don't know how we're going to change. We're fundamentally changed. We, we, you know how our grandparents went through stuff and they were always different. And it was hard to understand. We've all changed and we don't even know. Like when you see pictures of people in crowds, uh, you bristle. Even movies. Uh, We were watching, Amy and I were watching a movie the other day. Like It was like Field of Dreams. Like, oh God, don't don't hug your (laughs) lost dad from death, from heaven. Yeah, you don't know. You guys haven't gotten tested yet. (laughs) Every Yeah, I think there are some things that have, that we will carry over into whatever life looks like after this. One of them being that not every time we need to have a discussion, we need to get everybody in the same room and talk for 10 minutes. Sometimes we can just do this. But I think what this is teaching us is that being in person is kind of the only way to do multi-hour meetings without going insane. You have to be in a room with people. You have to be able to just have that kind of connection because at a certain point, there's this weird decline of comprehension and presence with people in this format where it just becomes completely counterproductive. Well, I, and I'm going to get back to like an intro, but I want, while we're talking about it and we're in the zone here about this thing, uh, one of my questions was going to be too, because I've been dealing with so many artists and their bands uh, and how they are making music. Because to me, not being in the same room as your bandmates, as people who make music together, I can't imagine what that process is like now. Well, we've we've gotten creative with our methodology. And the way we would normally do things is I would sit in this room and write a bunch of songs and then send them around to everybody on a Dropbox link. And people would be like, oh, I like that one. I like that one. Or I don't like that one. And we'd kind of compile a list of songs that we might make into an album. But in May or June or whatever, I kind of came up with this idea of like, why don't we just start writing almost like a game of telephone where we'll start a song from an atypical place, i.e. maybe Zach, our keyboard player, will send a piece of music on a Monday to Nick, our bass player, on a Tuesday. He will then send that piece of music to Jason, our drummer, who will send it to me 
who will send it to Dave. And at the end of the week, we have a song. And we have a series of rules for this in that whoever has the piece of music in front of them has complete editorial control. So they can just say, yeah, I don't like that guitar line. It's gone. I'm not even sending it to the next person. Or I'm going to redo the drums. Or, yeah, this doesn't have real drums. It has a drum machine. Or maybe this doesn't have a keyboard on it after all. So we've ended up with a number of songs in addition to the songs that I've been writing on my own that I think are really interesting for this band that I think will kind of represent an interesting new color palette that we're going to be able to bring to fans of the band. But having said that, there's also fatigue in working in that format. Initially, it was really exciting because we started getting a couple of things that were like, holy shit, this is really good. And we would have not have gotten here had we not been giving everybody complete creative control to do whatever they wanted. But everybody's pretty itching to get in a room and play music together and see which of these songs work, which of them don't. I mean, I love these guys. I want to hang out with them in a room and make dick and fart jokes, you know, because I'm 44. That's a normal thing <laughs> for a 44-year-old to do. Um, and uh, I, I'm glad that we're able to be connected in some fashion right now and be working on music, even in an atypical kind of methodology. And it certainly, I think, will be a part of what the next thing sounds like. But it doesn't compare with being in a room with people. I think we see, you know, with even these Zoom chats and, and the way we had meetings where, yeah, you start to see the advantage of these things. And then the fatigue of them wears off and the lack of human connection and mm -hmm. human touch or bad jokes or whatever it might be that you're losing in person is, is having an effect as well that we will, that will affect for a long time, in my opinion. Um, ben Gibbard is here with us here on the doctor and the DJ podcast. Thank you for taking the time today as well. Um, we are all, all here in Seattle talking uh, miles apart. We are stranded out here in West Seattle. Uh, Ben's over in uh, in in the center of anarchy, uh, Capitol Hill, which it is not. Um, <laughs> ben, I, and I'm going to ask you about that in a sec because sure. our bar, uh, as you know, is located in 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 that area as well. And I want to get back to that really quick. But Amy, you had a. I'll let Amy take over. I think it's really interesting what you were saying about your creative process and how we've had to innovate because that's what we've had to do in this time. And you know, one of my favorite ways to innovate is to think, what is the worst possible thing I could do right now <laughs> in this situation, right? You yeah. know, and just start brainstorming on the worst possible thing you could do. And you actually come up with some really awesome ideas. But John and I, you know, in this time, we've been talking a lot about hope and what that means to people. And, you know, not a sense of false hope, like wishful thinking and just talking about wishing, but hope the way I define it is belief plus expectation plus desire and then with modeled behavior, right? Because you can have hope if you can see it modeled. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you about that and we can segue right into running. We know you're an ultra marathoner and a runner and you've got to have a lot of hope to start doing that and see that modeled for you. And then you yourself are modeling that for other people. What was the moment you said, I got to run, I got to start running. This is the thing I want to do. I guess it started in 2007. I was going to this gym in Fremont and I would just go and, I don't know, do some push-ups and sit-ups and do an elliptical for a half hour or whatever it might be. Nothing, you know, nothing really kind of uh, organized. And I started seeing people running on a treadmill and I started thinking like, you know what? I could maybe run like, I could run at least a mile, right? I could do that. So then I 
one day I just kind of went over to the treadmill, hopped on and just set it and ran for a mile and thought like, okay, well I did that. And then the next time I went, I was like, maybe I could run for two miles. Maybe I'll do the elliptical for 20 minutes and maybe I'll run for two miles. Maybe that's a good workout. Maybe that's something that I should be doing. Eventually I kind of moved out of the gym and started running around my neighborhood. And I started running before I quit drinking in 2008. But when I quit drinking, running became something that I had to do. And it wasn't as if I had to run, otherwise I would relapse. It was just that running, you know, I think for people when they, you know, talk to a runner and they are not runners, they'll say something like, oh, I, oh, I tried it. I just can't, uh, it's just not for me. It just hurt too bad or I have bad knees or whatever it might be. And I think one thing that everybody who's starting to run has to kind of work through is that it's going to suck for a while. It's not going to feel good. It's going to feel like you're doing something wrong. Your body's telling you, hey man, we don't do this. We put beer and liquor and pizza in here and we don't move. That's not what we do. We, we're not, we don't do this. And I had to kind of slowly beat my body into submission. Like, no, we're doing this and we're going to run four miles four times a week or whatever it might be. And that's just going to be what we do. And eventually it started to feel good. And I started to get that classic runner's high that people always talk about. And so when I quit drinking, it just became a more of a, a focal point of my life. Like this is something I have to do every day. And I didn't really step past those shorter distances for a, a while until on a whim, I signed up for the LA marathon in 2011 that I'd never even run a half. And in keeping with my personality that I just never see the point of going halfway with something. What's the point? Why, why do a half? Just do the whole thing. And that's not always a best way to kind of go through life uh, because, you know, I think that's also what turned me into an alcoholic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and one thing kind of led to another. I signed up for a trail race on accident, not realizing that I was signing for a trail race. And I showed up at the start and I was asking people, where is this race going? And they were like, we're going over that hill. This is a trail race. And I was wearing road shoes, like Brooks Adrenaline's and some dumb hydro pack. And I looked like a total noob. Uh, but I had the best time. I, I had so much fun. And I learned that people ran farther than a marathon. What's that all about? Well, I got to try that. And every distance that I've kind of worked my way up to just became a new challenge and a new way to kind of see if I could do it. You know, I do it for the sense of accomplishment that I get and the sense of structure that training gives my life especially as a professional musician, there's very little time of my life that is actually structured. It's an important part of structure that I put into my life, but also, you know, I'm sure you guys know this too. When you, when you're running long distances, you get into a flow state where everything just falls away and you're just this being in space and anything in your life that is not running does not exist in that moment. And people do all sorts of things to get to that point, but running has become that vehicle for me to get there. So Ben, you told me the other day that, that you had an injury uh, and you haven't been able to run for a little while. What's the injury and how long has it been since you've been able to run? I have a tear in my labrum uh, of my, my left hip. I think it kind of came on about this time last year and I didn't really know what was going on. And I kind of ran through it and worked with a strength coach because I thought it might be just a soft tissue thing. Um, and I ran a couple of 50Ks and a couple of 50 mile distances on it and thought like, this is really weird because it does, it doesn't, it didn't present like a normal injury. It wasn't, it's not an injury where you do more and it hurts more. Uh, it just kind of comes in and out without any real kind of rhyme or reason. So eventually in September I got an MRI and they said, yeah, you have the small tear in your labrum. You're gonna have to not run for at least two months. And, um, 
work with a physical therapist, do some strength work and some other cardiovascular stuff like that's not running. So I think when I, when I first realized that I was going to be not running for at least two months, there was this panic of, you know, what am I going to do if I can't run? Who am I as an athlete if I'm not a runner? I, can I say I'm a runner? Can I say I'm an ultra runner if I'm currently not running? <laughs> And my wife was also really concerned even before this injury of what would happen if I got injured and couldn't run. She was like, I don't think I want to be around you if you can't run. Uh, but it's certainly been a journey. It's been difficult. And I think I'm a couple of weeks away from being able to try a little bit of running. I think my training as an ultra runner has also been beneficial in going through recovery because you recognize that over the course of this particular journey, there's going to be ups and downs. They're going to have good days and bad days. And you're just going to have to put, you know, the proverbial one foot in front of the other until you're on the other side. So one of the bright spots of this for me is that I've been just swimming a ton. I bought a wetsuit and I've been swimming out in Alki and in Green Lake. I swam for two hours today in Green Lake and it was like wow. a trip. It's, I mean, it's freezing, <laughs> uh, even in a wetsuit, but it's, it's rekindled that love of swimming for me. And I've realized through this period of being injured that you know, I'm de I definitely identify as an ultra runner, but I also just really enjoy long periods of being self-propelled, whether that's running, swimming, biking, hiking, whatever. I just, I just like to be self-propelled and I like to do it for long periods of time. So, uh, I'm certainly itching to get back to running, but you know, some of the stuff I've been able to do in the water that I haven't done since I was in high school has also been really uplifting. It's kind of scratched that itch a bit. I ran, um, Portland and years ago and, uh, you know, I, I, did well. And I, and I finished, I had a little bit of soreness and, um, I trained probably a little too hard as the first marathon I'd, I'd run. And then I, I got, you know, home and a few days pass and I'm going to go run three miles just to, you know, cause I can do anything now. My God, yeah. I just ran 26 miles, my best time. I got a mile in, in my Achilles tour. Oh, um, God. Com I completely went down. Like I, I, I had to, I remember I had to get help, um, from someone to get home a mile away. Like I was, you know, hobbling in. And what happened to me was the same thing. Who am I? I've been training. And, and for me, it's, it's to battle depression. I realized without even knowing it, like you, you say about recovery, that it was doing um, such wonders for my um, battle with depression. And I immediately went to swimming and I'd never really swam really since I was a kid. I remember getting in the pool and looking around at how people swam because I, I just mm -hmm. remember when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to die in this pool. And I went to, um, it was Seattle Central Community College's uh, pool. And I just watched people and I swam and I started to take the bike. And, and so I guess, you know, and this, this is pretty easy to tie into the pandemic as well. You know, when you take these things away from people, many things can happen. And we're finding different avenues to be creative, to help ourselves and help others. And you're someone who's been doing that for years now. And and you were one of the first that pivoted really, I mean, I have to say pretty quickly, you know, how we talk about how like Zoom chats and all this, we didn't, I didn't even consider this a thing nine months ago. When I first saw you were going to do a broadcast from your home, I remember thinking like, what? well, that's pretty amazing. Nobody's really doing that, which seems so <laughs> innocent to me now because yeah. a lot of people are doing that. And we actually aired on KXP, your very first one. It was, it was amazing. I think you were covering Radiohead and I was, yeah, uh, yeah, Amy, yeah. And I, Amy and I were just, I think we pulled the car over and we we're just like, oh, you really helped us that day. Like you really honestly made me feel like I could do this that day. And, and every day we need 
that thing and you were that thing that day. And tell me how that came about, how, how you thought to do that. Well, first off, thank you. That, that really means a lot. Um, my manager, Jordan Curland, had reached out right around the initial lockdown and he had suggested, hey, it might be a good idea to maybe you should do a, like a live stream. Maybe we should play some shows, some songs on YouTube or whatever for people. And for whatever reason, I said, yeah, I'll, let's do that. And I want to do it every day for a month or something. Or I picked some I picked some arbitrary length of time. And he was like, uh, sure, if that's something you want to do. Says the guy who will only run the very long distances. I'm not shocked <laughs> by that, by the way. Yeah, no, exactly. This is, you're going to, there's a, definitely a pattern here. So I just committed very early to doing a lot of these. And I really appreciate everyone who's messaged me or on the rare occasion that you're out in public and somebody recognizes you from six feet away in a mask. I appreciate everybody who has said that those shows were very helpful to them. And I, I, I certainly recognize that, but I didn't think, yeah, I really need to help people. It was just, this is the thing that I do. And there might be some people out there who would like this. And selfishly, I would like it because, you know, I'm also existing in this pandemic too. I'm also terrified. I also have no idea what the next week is going to look like, let alone the next month or year. And playing music in front of people is something that I've done for 30 years. Um, so initially the idea was, yeah, let's just play some songs. I don't know how long I'll play, but over the course of days into weeks, and then I guess into months, it was really pretty amazing to see this community that started to develop around these shows. And I would go into the chat maybe 15 minutes before I'd start playing. And I would notice that I would start noticing the same screen names. I would notice that people were talking to each other. And I would notice that people were discussing pretty heavy shit with each other. And that people were tied into each other's lives. They would say like, oh, so I, end, I didn't end up losing my job. Oh man, I'm so sorry. Do you need anything? I don't know. You know, people or like, yeah, I got that. Uh, you know, it looks like, you know, I'm going to be able to make it through the next month. My rent came through, whatever kind of stuff. And then, you know, people saying, I wonder if he's going to play this or that. He hasn't played this yet. And I go like, oh, I haven't played that yet. I'm going to play that today. And from, you know, when I, sometimes I'll be asked questions about like, did you know that that when you wrote that song, that that song would be this in the world? It would provide people with this emotional palette or they would it would be a salve in times that were difficult for them or whatever and the answer was always no i never i mean what kind of psychopath would think you know after they wrote a song like you know this song's really going to help a lot of people you know that, that's like <laughs> that's such a narcissistic horrible <laughs> thought for somebody to have like oh it's so what you know i really wrote a song that's really gonna really gonna help people through some tough time you know you don't you don't think like that you just write what you're gonna write you play the shows that you're gonna play and this was very much an extension of that. And only as it progressed did I realize that this was something that was really important to people that were tuning in and that I had developed a responsibility to them to not just one day disappear. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it forever, uh, but this had gone from just like, yeah, this would be a fun thing to do for a couple of weeks to like, oh, this is something that um, this group of people are, are really looking forward to and kind of retroactively became something that was an important thing to be doing. To be an artist in a time like this, if, if you it, like when we look back, uh, I, I think back to like the late 60s when there was just civil strife and, and civil rights and so much uh, going on um, in the world. And 
how much artists played a part in that for people being there. We're in that period. Yeah. What I was going to say is that it takes endurance. It takes grit. Yeah, it turns and, it out. And Ben, all, everything you're talking about, you know, well, I ran four miles and then I ran a marathon and then I ran ultra marathons. You know, that's your personality. And so when you show up to play those home sessions, what you inadvertently did for people was modeled endurance. And so if you want to tie this back to health and mental health and wellness and all of that, it takes a certain amount of like physical grit to get through the mental grit and to endure all of it together. I agree. But I think it's also important to recognize that I am in a very different position than the overwhelming majority of Americans and people who are going through this pandemic. Um, I am not worried where my mortgage payment is going to come from. I, uh, my wife and I do not have children, so we're not dealing with working jobs and or not working jobs and also trying to be teachers, something that we're not actually qualified to do. This has been difficult on everybody in in some very similar ways and some very unique ways. And I think for people in my position, this has been a time where I've felt even more of an obligation to help people than I would even on just a normal year. And I'm not saying that to be self-aggrandizing or anything like that, but you know, we are sit we are sitting here on Capitol Hill with, without the concerns that most people are having right now. And therefore I think that we have an obligation to help people out in, in whatever way we can right now. But I think also as an endurance athlete, I do have a particular skill set that maybe the average Jane or Joe doesn't have. Yeah, you know, I I haven't really thought of that in that way until you brought it up. But yeah, I do think being an ultra runner certainly plays into one's ability to kind of view this like an ultra marathon. You're you're going to have some highs and some lows and some really lows, and you're just going to have to keep putting one foot in front of the other because nothing nothing lasts forever. No feeling lasts forever. No heartache. No physical pain. No moment of uh, anxiety lasts forever. These moments are going to pass. And the only way we, they are going to pass is if we walk through them and we just keep putting one foot in front of the other. So one thing I want to say really quick is, Ben, I saw you at the Showbox just the other day, um, which was bittersweet to say the least. It is so weird to be in a club like the Showbox and for it to be empty. And for those outside of Seattle, Showbox is one of the best venues you will ever see a show at and is usually very full. And, um, you were very active in, you were on the show actually, um, talking about keeping the show box open. Remember the good old days when yeah. the show box closing was our big fear of, of <laughs> nightlife. And, uh, and he has a great song, um, gold rush that I just love that, that, uh, talks a lot about the development of Seattle and it kind of ties in to uh, the show box possibly closing. Well, now what we're seeing is I don't mean, mean to be alarmist. I think it's important. I don't believe most clubs will open back up and if they do, they will not be independent. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of having those independent venues? And I mean, they're so screwed. They're so yeah. they're so on the list of places screwed. Um, Amy and I own a bar 
uh, we're pretty high on that list of people who are screwed because a bar is a terrible thing. It turns out you don't know till a pandemic, but the worst thing you could probably own, but the only, th- well, not the only thing, but one of the worst things you could own is a club because clearly you need people to come in to buy booze for them to survive and be a part of this ecosystem, let alone the bands who need these locations. And so, and on a list, politicians, as you know, as you worked really hard to try to keep the show box open for there to be attention there, it takes a lot for politicians to recognize and city leaders to recognize the importance of music and the arts. It is a massive problem right now. So just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I echo all your sentiments. I think one of the issues that that the music industry is having, in particular the independent venue industry, if we could even call it an industry, is that the arts are such a low priority in this country. During normal times, it's difficult to finagle money from any city, state, federal body for the purpose of the arts in general, not even related to music and music venues. So now in Seattle and in every other city in America and around the world, but specifically in America, sadly, saving independent venues and live music is not a huge priority for any city, state, or federal governing body. You know, there there are so many other things right now that are taking precedence. And so I think from my perspective, I'm not sure how we go about putting pressure on our representatives right now to save something that is absolutely worth saving when people are facing evictions, people are uh, losing jobs, schooling is becoming decimated, infrastructure, name a hundred things before you get to live music. Live music and Music in general is the most important thing in my life, but it's very difficult to place it in front of some more immediate concerns for the average American. Um, so where are we? We're in the situation where we are we are in danger of losing a lot of independent venues. And one might say, well, you know, if we lose the crocodile, you know, there'll be another venue that'll open up. It doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, someone's gonna open a venue. And I would counter that with, well, yeah, someone might open a venue, but it might be Amazon presents the crocodile. And um, as a performer, you're no longer just going in there to play a show. You're going in there to, okay, well, we're going to film it for our Amazon coffee house series. And, and uh, we're going to own that footage. If you want to play here, we're going to own the recordings and we might want to put it out on kind of our own music streaming service. You know, that's just what you're signing up for as an artist. And one might call me paranoid here, but I I mean, we can check back when this is all over and see if I'm right here. And I don't mean to be specifically calling out Amazon. It could be Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It doesn't matter. Any any large corporation that has an interest in owning intellectual property free and clear would be foolish to not take advantage of this moment where they can buy low on venues and then trick them out however they might need to trick them out so they can make even more money off of people like myself. That is a very, very real scenario you just talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look, I've been doing this for quite a while, and I've done the AOL live session for whatever, fill in the blank, doing a promo run and signed reams of paper about who owns what. And I'm in a very unique position in relation to most musicians in that I came up at the tail end of people still selling albums. So I was able to make a fair amount of my living off of you know record sales which is something that completely doesn't exist anymore and we're at a place now where unless you're post malone 
you don't make any money off of streaming. So where does that leave all of us? It leaves us with publishing, which uh, sadly becomes less and less valuable as the, as the years go on because it's just the glut of music in the world. Um, but also from playing live and selling merchandise at shows or albums at shows. And my fear uh, is that, you know, bands like Death Cab for Cutie will be fine. It's the bands that are going out on their first tours and they, in this dystopian world I've created in my mind, will be playing the Google Lounge, uh, formerly known as Barboza, and, uh. and <laughs> you know, and be, and be maybe even being paid less because the exposure they're going to get from the multimedia experience that Google will then disseminate on their behalf afterwards is really for their benefit. You know, we're really doing this for you. This is really all promo. We'll do this all for promo, but we're going to pay you less for the show. And look, I know I might sound old and paranoid here, but and I hope I'm wrong, but we'll see at the end of this where we are. Because I, 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 that, that to me is something that in relation to where venues might be going keeps me up at night. Amy, any last thoughts? Yeah, I just, you know, I think about musicians or artists who are just starting out or they're in that lower sort of pay scale and experience scale and small clubs are how they get their experience. And that's any performer, really. That's comedians. That's Mm -hmm. anyone who's doing that kind of thing who needs a small venue to tour in. They need not to be so intensely compromised (laughs) in in who they are and what they're trying to create. And it has a huge impact, not just on the economics of their career or the possibility that they could ever have a career as a musician or an artist or a comedian or whatever, but it has real profound effects on their health, on their mental health, on their physical health, because now they've completely compromised their integrity. And so it puts kind of a yucky feeling on the arts, that now the arts are all corporate. And we already know that's a huge issue anyway, but I think what's kind of getting us in this moment and what's getting us um, thinking about the future is prioritizing art, prioritizing music as an essential. You know, I think of it as essential. And no matter how much money you have or don't have, if you are evicted or have a job or not, you probably still have a song in your heart right? You still have music you love or music you play, or it's, it's still a huge part of your life. It's essential, I guess is it what is I'm essential. saying. And I think what you said, Ben, about um, prioritizing clubs, because it is a hard conversation. Like, I will every once in a while go off on the government abandoning the hospitality industry, for instance, because I'm in mm. that with the bar. But I, I do it very rarely. And when people say, oh, it's so, it must be really, really hard. And someone was telling me that who is laid off and it doesn't have a job and the unemployment's going to, and they're telling me that. So it's mm-hmm. immediately like, we're going to be okay. So it is interesting because I don't feel comfortable advocating for my own business because we, so many people are hurting right now that this is another reason that clubs and these things are in trouble. And I agree with it. Those are not the priorities, even though they are, but they're not because there's so much more we need to fix. Well, and I think I think to your point, we are entering a very uh, an accelerated period of haves and have-nots, and you know we are seeing that in our own city. And I think one one element that comes with that, and this might I don't want to stray into too political of a corner here, but I think what's difficult about 
explaining to people why live music is important is that there are people who view those who own clubs as the man or see you guys as bar owners like you guys are the man when in actuality <laughs> you're an independent business owner you know with you know with with the help of other people pooled all of your money to kind of create this thing that you always wanted to have in the world and before the pandemic the idea of this bar was vindicated by people coming in droves i came there all the time i i love i love your bar love the food and you know i think when we talk about club owners in seattle for example i think one of the difficulties in translating the severity and urgency of this problem is that as the haves and have nots continue to widen it becomes difficult to recognize that some of the people who are being put in the haves category are really people who saved up a lot of their money and time and and built these things with their own hands but when people are on the street when people are living in the parks when people are struggling to pay the rent it's very difficult to go out to the general public as someone who is technically a have and say i'm worried that i'm going to lose the thing i have can you help me save the thing that i have <laughs> and then people some people will be like fuck you i don't have anything why should i care about right. what you have it's a very delicate issue to bring to the general public because there are too many people who have nothing right now and if somebody has anything they don't want to hear or i should say some people don't want to hear about someone who has things having issues with maybe losing those things uh one last thing we saw a great post something about crisco and voting and <laughs> somehow this came across my instagram feed i think it's your wife's account she's a photographer yeah 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 and it was a picture of the two of you in your wedding outfits voting. Yeah. <laughs> it was just awesome. I'm like, wow, what's happening here? Who is that? What's going on? And uh, again, it was this like feel good, like beacon of hope thing. And I know it was your anniversary, but just the fact that I think she said you Crisco'd yourselves into your wedding outfits. And, and yeah. so it looked like a, like a marriage, like a new beginning, right? And I don't know if you were thinking about that when you voted or if you were just thinking, oh, this would be fun. Uh, but it's super cool to see. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my, my wife had this idea, uh, her name's Rachel Demi and, uh, uh, Rachel had this idea. We were trying to figure out what to do for our anniversary. There were some discussions about maybe going to dinner at one of our favorite restaurants that had outdoor seating, but with the weather changing and everything, it just, it's not something we'd really count on. So Rachel had this idea of like, let's, let's put, let's dress up in our wedding clothes and drive around to our friends' houses. We, we put a cooler in the back of our car <laughs> and we put a bunch of drinks in there and we brought our camp chairs and just drove around to a bunch of our friends' houses and just surprised them, knocked on the door or texted them from outside, of course, and just sat on people's porches, you know, of course, socially distanced or in people's backyards but one thing we wanted to do on the way out there was to drop off our ballots because I want to get this thing out of my life. I don't need to watch the debates. I don't need to read Politico. I don't need to. Do, I just need to check Joe Biden's name down there and Jay Inslee and a number of other things and just send this thing into the world. And Rachel had her friend Eric come out and take some photos of us. And what was really striking to me at the ballot box was that people were just kind of giving each other like a like a nod as everybody was putting their ballots into the box. People were like. We're, yeah, we're going to do this, right? 
Well, Ben Gibbard, thank you for being with us today and spending some time with us. And uh, it's good to see you on uh, on the other side of the city. Um, and when this pandemic's over, <laughs> to be able to see live music again and hopefully see you in front of us playing. And uh, thank you for everything. Thanks for all those performances, for hanging out with us today. And um, again, by just doing and showing up. And I think we need to recognize how important it is that um, people are showing up like you, be it playing music for people or just being out there and even spending your anniversary showing people you're voting is being and doing. And I think we need more of that. So thanks, Ben. Well, thank you. And that and that also cuts both ways. I mean, all the work that you've been doing on behalf of the city and, you know, getting up early every morning when I'm sure all you wanted to do was just lay in bed and just be terrified you didn't do that you got up and you got on the radio and you played music for people and you you gave people a salve for what was ailing them and even in in three and four minute increments and that's incredibly valuable so thank you thanks ben i appreciate that oh this world's gonna bring me down oceans rising That was so great talking to Ben just now. Um, God, I have so much respect for him. You know, he's, he's, uh, I kept trying to compliment him and he's just not having he's, it. He wasn't like, he was, he was just not having, he wasn't it. having it. I want to get back to a bit of runner's high, if that's an actual medical condition. And uh, I also want to get back to Ben Gibbard's injury. You know, I've had my little injuries along the way and I, it really affects me. Clearly, uh, he's dealing with that. You had your own uh, minor injury as well, right? Yeah, just a little small thing. I had a total hip replacement. And it came about after, well, during running that Vancouver half marathon. I collapsed during the Vancouver half marathon. Turned out, you know, I had lateral hip dysplasia and I had to have a total hip replacement because there was nothing left. There was no soft tissue left, just bone against bone, pain, couldn't walk. For a long time. So, you know, the moral of that story is, is run the full marathon. That's what Ben Gibbard said. Yeah. He said he doesn't half-ass it. He doesn't do half marathons. And I think that's where I went wrong. That might've been where you went wrong, or maybe it was something uh, that as a child should have been identified quicker and dealt with. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, it was a congenital condition. That means that I was born with it and it wasn't diagnosed when I was a baby. And I spent my whole life with my hip out of alignment and just, you know, but this is actually a very common condition. A lot of women especially, but a lot of people reach 40-ish and end up in a hip replacement. So, Well, getting back to the runner's high too, something you stopped experiencing once you stopped running, which uh, it's a thing, right? You hear a lot about it. I've been a runner all my life and I hear this runner's high and all these endorphins and all these other things. And I always feel better after I run for sure. And what I also know is when I don't run, I feel pretty bad. So that's, that's even for me, 
uh, more evidence that there is a runner's high. Is that a real thing? Is that like a, a, a chemical thing? Is it a real thing that's going on in my body? Well, yeah. I mean, there's some debate in the science community about what produces a runner's high. You know, mm-hmm. people, you hear people talk about endorphins all the time. And there's a lot of new research on endocannabinoids, which are naturally produced in your body that also provide uh, feel-good chemicals in your brain, make you feel real good. So there's definitely a lot of chemical, biochemical response affecting you down to that cellular level that is making you feel good. But there is a little bit of debate whether it's endorphins or something else. So you definitely feel good when you run. It's more of a debate about what is making you feel good when you run, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't always feel good when you're running. No, I don't. (laughs) I mean, when I was a long distance runner and I would do a lot of running, um, I hated that first mile and a half or like the first 10 or so minutes. I hated it. It was super hard. Yeah, on the uh, I do the the running podcast over at KEXP, and I have this quote that was the most reacted to, and I don't remember where I saw it, but uh, I said the first mile is a liar, and it's true. That is a a lying son bitch. That is that is not how you're going to feel for the rest of your run. In theory, I've never felt good in decades of running in my first mile ever. Yeah, and. You know, the reason for that is because that's right as your sympathetic nervous system kicks in. So it's ramping up. Yeah. And and basically in that moment, it's our evolutionary run from the dinosaur, run from the saber-toothed tiger, run from danger, run from the bear, whatever, you know, put your analogy in there. And, you know, you have these competing, well, not exactly competing, but you have your sympathetic nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system, your enteric nervous system, you know, which we won't go into right now, but... Your sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response. And your parasympathetic nervous system is more like rest and digest. So when you start a run, your sympathetic nervous system is like the volume is turned up to 11, right? Like it is full blast and it's getting your heart rate going. It's getting blood to your muscles. It's expanding and dilating your lungs so you can breathe better. And that doesn't feel good, that initial sympathetic engagement at that volume. But then when you're kind of, you know, I don't know, 10 or so minutes in, everybody's different, your body starts to adjust. Your body's like, okay, we're going to be here for a while. And so that sympathetic nervous system, it turns the volume down a little and the parasympathetic nervous system turns, it was almost at zero, probably not completely off, but it turns itself back up just a little. And then your body starts compensating for the stress. So it starts releasing all those extra chemicals to sort of make you feel okay and mask the stress on your body from the run, which actually makes you feel good. And so that's where that zone comes in. So if you're an ancient human, you are running from a saber-toothed tiger, you're like, oh my God, I got to run. This thing's going to fucking kill me. And you're running, you're like, this sucks. This running sucks. That tiger behind me sucks. And then about 10 minutes in, you're like... Yeah, no, I'm doing all right. It's actually kind of nice for me. I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> I don't know. You might still have a sympathetic response. It might still really suck. Maybe maybe that's what happens, uh, that you get relaxed in your run and the saber-toothed tiger eats you. So that's, that's not good. Um, I will say when you start running, here's some advice from a runner too who hates the first mile. But if, you're, if you've never run before, think about that. You may be out there and you've tried to be like, no, no, running sucks. And I hear you. Maybe you ran a mile and went, why did I just do that? That was dumb. It's cold and my lungs hurt. Start slow. Walk, 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 and then run for a time. Don't run for a distance. Say, I'm going to run for 30 seconds and then just 
leisurely run down the street for 30 seconds, uh, not into opposing traffic. Anything. Run on the sidewalk for 30 seconds, uh, then stop, then walk. And then you're like, I'm going to walk for, you know, two minutes. And then you just can increase your time and, and don't go for distance right away. Yeah. You know, and I would say to that, to make sure you don't injure yourself. That's right. Is take it really slow. Take it very slow. And you know, and if you have any asthma or a history of asthma or something, that thing about that 10 minutes and the sympathetic response I was talking about a minute ago, a lot of people will have exercise induced asthma attacks. And that's why. So if you're one of those people and you wonder why that happens to you, like if you're at the gym and you start working out, it's because when you are in a super, you know, volume up at 11, uh, sympathetic response, your nervous system is overriding the asthma, like your lungs are expanding and you're getting plenty of air in, but then once it starts to calm down, then you can have an asthma attack. It can trigger an asthma attack. So, you know, just putting that out there, <laughs> go slow, bring your inhaler. Well, Amy, I, I, I appreciate you clearing that up a little for me. You know, I, I don't necessarily need evidence, you know, when something's mm-hmm. happening. I see this a lot with meditation. You see scientists figuring out what it really does to yeah. your brain. I find that fascinating. Like, oh, that's cool. Um, uh, I do get that feeling. I, I always like the science behind how I feel. This is what I know. Of all the things I've done, of all the different ways I've coped with my depression, running has been probably the best thing for me. And I know that. And it's not for everyone. I'm not saying it's a cure for your depression. I'm not saying it will work for you. But what I do know is it's a meditative movement that keeps me focused. And afterwards, I feel more alive than when I began that run. Right. And I just want to say any movement where you can be in the present moment is super good for your mental health. Yeah. You mean, I just, we just went for a walk. We just got back. Full we disclosure. Walk every day. We we felt really good after the walk and we wanted to record stuff. I mean, right there tells you you can even have, you know, this positive outlook to want to record your podcast. So walking, running, any kind of sports, right? Like just get out anything there and move. That, yeah, anything that gets you mentally in the moment because often throughout our day we're so sedentary right. and our brains are just going a mile a minute like all the thoughts and all the worries and all the things and all the work and all the things we have to do. But if you can get your body moving where you have to be present, you know, people who do yoga call it a moving meditation or like running is like a moving meditation. Walking is a moving meditation. Anything that's keeping you present, keeping you moving absolutely will have an impact on your mental health for the good. Well, in follow-ups later, I'm going to want to dive into, uh, for you marathon runners out there, why we only ran from saber-toothed tigers or whatever the hell we were running from is about 20 to 21 miles because every marathon runner feels it at that point. (laughs) And the other thing is, is how long do we have to live as humans when this is no longer a thing? Like how long, no one ever talks about how long we now have to go where we're not running from animals and we're not freaked out and we're no longer um have that in our body i'm guessing it's millions of years but uh i'm just hopeful maybe one day we'll decide you know what we're not scared of animals anymore welcome to weekday wine where we see how long amy and i have made it through the week before having to take a drink um and we've made it to sunday and when does the week start for you are you like a saturday through um Saturday through Friday kind of person. I think I had to do math in my head. A Sunday through a Saturday, a Monday through a Sunday. When does a week start for you? Well, I set up my Google calendar Monday through Sunday. So Monday through Sunday. So so in theory then, we've made it to the end of the week. 
Yes. Yes. Not the first day of the week. We made it to the end of the week. However, tomorrow's a weekday. So you can do the math. So this episode's sponsor of Weekday Wine, Amy, is Crater Lake Rye Whiskey for our wine segment. <laughs> we put the wine down and we've gone straight to the uh, to the whiskey. That's right. I believe uh, they're right out of the Pacific Northwest, Bend, yeah. Oregon. Yeah, Bend, Oregon. Beautiful Bend, Oregon. Lovely place. If you get a chance to visit, do so. Uh, this is Crater Lake Straight American Rye Whiskey, Amy. Apparently, it was the 2018 Craft Competition Gold winner, because I'm reading it right off the bottle. And again, their sponsorship, uh, well, we went and bought this, so I don't really, actually, I think it was a gift. I don't remember. I don't remember. Well, it showed up in our house, and that's how sponsorship works, either as a gift or we spend the money. Or we went and bought it. We probably went and bought it. And um, we've been rediscovering the whiskey uh, as of late, and it made me think, Amy, about the first time you had alcohol. Do you remember when that was? Yes, it was whiskey. It was whiskey. Oh, yeah. Was it a high quality, fine aged whiskey? I would have no fucking idea. <laughs> um, I stole it out of the liquor cabinet. Jack Daniels? Probably. Uh, no, I don't know. It was probably really nice. Oh. And it wasn't my parents' liquor cabinet. My parents were Mormon. They didn't drink. It's called the uh, word of wisdom. You don't do the coffee. Oof. You don't do the cigarettes. Okay. You don't do the alcohol, but you do the sugar. Right. And I have to say, <laughs> that's, when, the, that's the Mormon joke. When we visit uh, <laughs> Amy's parents, um, I would drink more coffee and sneak alcohol every chance I get. It's, it's, it's when you say you can't have it, it's a forbidden fruit. It, it's, it makes it more, you know, it doesn't work as a parent to remember that. Yeah. So the whole thing about growing up in Salt Lake City, Mormon is what set you apart from the Mormons, if you were going to rebel against it, was if you were a partier or not, right? Mm. So if you were smoking the weed or drinking the Keystone Light, or, you know, it was never good beer, right? Because the religion was so focused, like like that's one of their signatures right. of the religion. So where did you steal this, this whiskey from then? Well, a I, non-Mormon. Was, I was taking care of a senior citizen. Yes, one does. <laughs> No, I, I don't even remember how old I was. I think 13 or 14. And my best friend next door, who was very Mormon, and she and I would, I don't want to say babysit because she wasn't a young person. She was an older person. She was the mother of our neighbor. And our neighbor and her husband, you know, had things to do. They had dinners and meetings and things. And so my next door neighbor and I would go over there and be with this older woman, the senior citizen who was also hooked up to an IV. So we'd have to like give her her meds and help her to the bathroom, things like that, you know. And this is not everybody's first drinking story, <laughs> but continue. Hey, you know, sure. who knew? No, go who on. knew? Later I became yeah, a doctor yeah, right, and, yeah. you know, got very familiar no, with no IVs and all this kind of stuff. No judgment here. So, um, so she's unconscious and you stole it from her liquor cabinet. Basically, but... <laughs> Let me just fast forward. That's my guess. No, she wasn't. She was sleeping, but not unconscious. Was there a lock? Did you have to... She was a beautiful soul that we talked to and read stories to, and yes. we were awesome of to course. her most of she the time. She would have wanted 99. you to have 99.9% yes. of the time, we were awesome yes. with her, caring for her. Our, and our kids are going to steal our liquor, so we will pay for this. Yeah. And so... She was sleeping and we said, what if, oh, it started with the coffee. There was a pot of cold, old coffee. Ooh. And we were like, 
Let's, forbidden coffee. Let's try the coffee, right? This forbidden coffee. Have you had coffee up to this point? No. Oh, wow. So we poured a little bit of coffee and we drank it. It was so disgusting. So bad, it was right? the most disgusting. You know, uh, I didn't get introduced to coffee with like a latte full of sugar or anything. <laughs> right. I had you know? a mocha. Like yeah. my first was a mocha <laughs> with like whipped cream on it. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Like all manly men get their first coffee. <laughs> I had cold black, like day old coffee. Oh man, you had cold brew. You were ahead of the times. And uh, then, we're, then we're like, let's, let's have alcohol. What should we have? I don't know. Well, coffee is the gateway. So now you're to alcohol. Does she have any cocaine in the house? <laughs> so we got the whiskey. So she had whiskey. And it smelled did, terrible. Did she have multiple alcohols? Did yes. You, okay, so someone had to make a decision. And, and like whiskey is the I thing, I think it right? was open. Okay. And it looked like we could probably get away with having some Smart. without being noticed. Smart. Yeah. So we poured some in glasses and it smelled so terrible that we poured water in it, which then makes it worse because then you've given yourself more to drink. <laughs> right. And so we drank this diluted whiskey. It was the most disgusting thing ever. But it was this bonding moment between me and my friend. How, how much did you have? Not much. It wasn't like a... No, it wasn't even like torn a half a shot or anything. Oh, we weren't good. drunk at all. Yeah, no well, way. you were also pretty hyper on the coffee, so... Yeah. my See, my first drink, real drink... Well, the first time I ever had any kind, like beer, I had a paper route. And I came walking along. I was the worst paper boy on earth. Oh my God, I was bad. Um, I was doing my paper out. It's the Sunday edition. So it was the morning. I did the afternoons and the weekdays. And I come rolling up to this house. And by rolling up, I mean, I'm wandering out in the middle of the darkness. I can't believe anyone lets any, used to let kids do this. And there's a car and it was sort of side diagonal in the driveway. The door was still open. And there was um, about three Rainiers left on a ring of six. And just sitting in the lawn, you could just, now that I look back, like you could see the steps this person took to make it into the house, drop their beer in the yard and then stumbled inside. So I grabbed one can. I didn't like, they're not going to notice one's gone. Anyone who drops Rainier in the middle of their yard with a running car and like the door open, I don't think you're going to counting the beers they dropped. Yeah, but that's an all or nothing situation. Like they would have no idea what happened to the beer. You should have just taken the full six pack. That's what I'm saying. But I'm so like paranoid. I'm looking around like, well, they might notice if one's gone. Yeah, the beer you left in the front yard, they may notice (laughs) one went a-missing. So I took it. It's five in the morning and I run up to the field and it's lukewarm Rainier beer. And you drank that at five in the morning. I went... And spit it out all over the place, <laughs> dropped the can, and ran home. So that's really the first time I had beer. So my friend Kevin, he lived about a mile away from me. He had a basement, then a you know the regular uh, level of the house, and then another level. But then they had a sort of attic bedroom kind of thing. And his parents would go out of, t- out of town all the time. And they had this elderly woman come and house sit and watch Kevin while they're gone. So there's no mayhem. And so we learned about this. He's like, you just sneak into the into the room. They had a pool table down there, and like, um, the basement was awesome, right? He goes, well, I got I got some alcohol. Like, I stole it from my parents' uh, liquor cabinet. So we actually snuck into a house where an older woman was watching the the home. We snuck in. He didn't sneak out because someone was watching him. We snuck in, but we're we got three levels of house in our in between me and the older lady. So we were good because she's older. She couldn't hear us. Because that's what we do, Amy. Um, so anyway, we got, uh, my first alcohol was rum. We had rum and Pepsis. And, um, well, that's good. It, it was. For it, a 14-year-old, that we, probably it, tasted pretty good. We had ice cubes. So we were mixing drinks. We put on a little Simon and Garfunkel, uh, I believe, live in Central Park, as one does. 
um, you know, a little bridge over troubled waters. And then we had uh, Honey Nut Cheerios, which I remember. And that was our like snack with our drinks. And then we proceeded to make a lot of rum and Pepsi. See, I had a little different experience than you. I had so many. Uh, I, I was very intoxicated the first time I got drunk. And our friend Chris, throwing up everywhere. Uh, how this woman did not wake up is beyond me. Because then we started cranking the music and we were doing all this stuff. And then I had to sneak back out of his house and go walk home. So now I'm wandering home in pitch black after, I don't know, three or four of these things, uh, singing, you know, Cecilia, you're breaking my heart, you know, and uh, and I made it home and snuck into my own window. So I went window to window for my first drink. So all my drinking took place within apparently one square mile of my home uh, at weird hours and weird circumstances. Well, that's better than in a senior citizen's home. Can I ask a question about that? I mean, we're, we both were too young. We shouldn't have been having alcohol at that age, right? But at the same time, it sounds like you and your friend Sarah, that was your way to, to rebel and to bond at the same time around a thing that this oppressive religion in your life um, said you couldn't do. Did it feel like you were kind of I don't know, liberated is the word? Oh, hell yeah. And the next time we went and took care of this elderly woman, we, we didn't get into the booze. Let's just put it that way. We did not get into the booze. Right. We definitely had decided coffee was disgusting, but we did bond over it. It was like a secret. Right. Like this thing we did, that was a secret. Well, here's a, you know, like when I was sitting with my friends, um, and one of them to this day, my friend John is still one of my best friends. I've known him all my life. I can tell you right now at that moment when we were having these drinks and listening to Simon and Garfunkel and Honey Nut Cheerios and playing some pool, that's one of the happier moments of my life up to that mo- up to, up to that time. Like I felt so free and felt so happy, not just because of the drinking, but I just felt like we were doing something on our own that we weren't supposed to and kind of showing the world that we could. And that felt good until, you know, Chris started throwing up into a garbage can uncontrollably. But up to that point, like it came from a place of goodness. Does that make sense? And then I think... If my own children did that, it would be hard for them to convince me that that's why they were doing it. And you would be having this conversation with me saying, Amy, remember all the things you did. I don't care. Right. You know, because it's so easy to be a hypocrite when you're a parent. Yeah, let's, it's so easy yeah. because you worry about them and you don't want them making the same mistakes you made and you don't and you want them to be safe. You don't want them to not only vomit alcohol because they drink too much, but uh, you don't want them getting into cars with people who've been drinking. You know, like you worry. There's so much worry. If I'm our oldest son and I'm his age, he's a teenager, my reaction would be after this, you know, when the pandemic ended, it would be to get together with my friends and have like beers and listen to music and get a little drunk and be in the moment. That would be what I do. I would have done that. Yeah, well, I think anything like this, and it doesn't even have to be drinking. Right. It can be sitting and listening to music. It's the bonding time, the slowing down time, and the escapism time that is so important. And it's so important to bond with people in that way, where you kind of extract yourself from your regular life, and you're doing something new, and you're doing something with someone you care about, and creating an experience. But the alcohol part of it, allows you to step out of your hangups, your shyness or your whatever you have at that moment. Like I remember thinking like, I just felt relaxed for the first time in a long time. 
Now, of course, this can all lead to just terrible habits and alcoholism and like, you got to be very careful. But that's how it can make a person feel. And yet, if that is what my kid did after this pandemic, I'd kill him. Okay, we're back and uh, we got to go. We got things to do. We got bars to close down, kids to raise, uh, people to practice medicine on. Medicine practicing? What is it? Treating? What are you doing? Telehealthing? <laughs> and I got some DJing to do. I yeah. just, I randomly DJ everywhere I can. No, I'm, uh, you can, by the way, you can catch me at kexp.org if you uh, want to listen to my show. But you've been listening to the Doctor and the DJ podcast with myself, DJ John Richards, and Dr. Amy Lindsay. And uh, stay tuned at the end of the podcast. We're almost there. I want to give you a full song from Deep Sea Diver, that song we mentioned earlier, Impossible Weight, which is just awesome. And I highly recommend going to their Bandcamp page. If a little bit of music advice as well, always go to a band's Bandcamp page. Bandcamp, especially through this pandemic, has been a shining light in supporting artists. Uh, Shout out to Bandcamp. Amazing people uh, over there running that place. Uh, so that place, just a big old place, a warehouse where they have just music coming out of it. Apparently, it's a camp. It's a it's a, it's a band camp. Yeah, it's a yeah. They're camping. Good job, Amy. Just tents. They're just out in the wilderness, streaming music. I don't know how anything works. Um, so I want to thank. Uh, I don't even know. Oh, I want to thank the Sea Diver for uh for just being them. I want to thank Ben Gibbard for the interview. Amy, take it away. Who else we want to thank? I want to thank, of course, our friends at Ruinous Media for putting up with us. Joe, Chris, Patrick. Thank you. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. And make sure to tell everyone you know about the Doctor and the DJ podcast. We leave you with the song I promised earlier, Impossible Weight, from Deep Sea Diver.
Contemplating suicide, call the National Suicide Hotline at 1 800 273 TALK or text HOME to 741 741.